Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, Peds Infectious Disease doctor and researcher. Now, last time, Santosh, I believe we talked the talk about fashion and medicine, and now it's time to catwalk the walk about, uh, well, I guess more modern fashion and medicine. I'm really I bad mean, at segues. No, that <laughs> that's okay. I mean, there's just there's one problem that I have if we're going to do this. Just um, one. You oh, can't... I'm getting better. <laughs> I mean, you you have to promise not to make fun of me for it. I make no uh, such promises. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> I um I can't turn left. <laughs> so Nerd, man. <laughs> <Nerd>. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, <laughs> we can do anything that we want to, but we just, I, I can't turn left. Medicine's so hot right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Blue scrubs. It's glorious. Last time we focused a lot on the history of fashion and medicine, going over such fascinating things as testicle mittens and tuberculosis shoes. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I, I thought, by the way, that, you know, going through everything that you'd show me and everything, I thought for sure we'd see the Justinian plague again and everything, and you'd be talking to me about plague suits and that kind of a thing. But it's interesting because as functional as the plague suits were, they didn't really make it into fashion. So all of these so far have been other like sneaky examples that I wouldn't have thought these have made it into fashion or from fashion. So I I, I was totally uh, sneakily taught by surprise. So last time we focused on how medicine influenced fashion. But now let's take a look at it from the other angle and see how fashion kind of had a little bit of an influence on on medicine. When you think of a modern day physician, how are we dressed? Don't look down. <laughs> Not when we record. That's a whole nother thing. Yes, yeah. my recording uniform is very different. Sure. So generally you have two styles, right? So you have dressed up and professional, um, you know, the, the shirt and tie for guys and uh, either a dress or, or a, a type of suit for a woman. Lab coat, if you choose to wear a lab coat or if that's something that you've grown up with. And then the other is scrubs. So you go from very formal and looking very dapper and everything to 
just, you know, let's find some thin scraps of paper and make them look vaguely shirt and pant like. Okay, so let's talk first about the white coat. More than anything else, people associate it with doctors. And more than anything else, most medical specialties are really starting to move away from it. When did we start wearing white coats? Why did we start wearing white coats? Who did we start wearing white coats? <laughs> that's it's that's a very, very fair question. I, I think it's necessary because traditionally lab coats are supposed to be for the lab when when you're a laboratory scientist it's what protects you in case something splashes on you so the who means well you know if you're a pure clinician if you're not going into the lab then what the hell is it for back in the day actually in my favorite era the victorian uh, doctors used to wear traditional black coats that were worn as a mark of formality you know like a tuxedo or just to symbolize the the gravity of their profession. And you can even see this. I will I'll link to a couple paintings just 14 years apart by Thomas Aikens. Uh, one called The Gross Clinic and the other called The Agnew Clinic. And in it, you see doctors change from, you know, this room full of sober looking men in black suits and bow ties in an operating theater to dressed in the very first long gown surgical scrubs. So this took place over a very rapid period of time. And it had to do with the ascendancy of, of science a little bit. So how did fashion influence the medical coat? Well, we were already dressed back in the day as these very formal, sober men of, and at the time it really was, largely just men, of men of import, of nobility. But towards the end of the 19th century, uh, you know, Western medicine kind of had a bit of an image problem. Yes, doctors were all over the place, but also they really only kind of showed up when you were dying. Not to save you, it's like, oh, the doctor's there. Bad news. Yeah, the, you, you would have other types of individuals who would be involved in kind of day-to-day -day care uh if there was are, were we still talking about when surgery and medicine was separated so surgery was really done by lower classes like barbers and butchers and then if you really had something really wrong with you you would call someone to administer physic which was you know the potions and whatever the hell that they kind of stirred up in their back room so you'd call the physician to come in. So in an, and with the prevalence of Joseph Lister's antiseptic technique and William Osler publishing in 1892, the principles and practice of medicine and the Flexner report that set standards for medical schools, doctors were really starting to gain real scientific authority as opposed to just nobility or aristocracy. Authority. This emphasis on science and cleanliness and purity uh, meant that medicine began emphasizing, look, we can be clean as well, rather than just go to surgeries dressed in your normal street clothes with a long butcher's gown. Um, and I should mention, at the time, in the late 1800s, you know, the mark of a successful surgeon was all the blood and body fluids splattered all over his clothes. So <laughs> if you saw someone walking down the street just covered in fluids, he could either be a murderer or a physician, and your response would be roughly the same. <laughs> if, if you said, you know, you came out wiping your brow, just, you know, oh, you know, sad look on your face, then okay, well, maybe you know, surgeon, I guess if you had a smile or a look of glee, then oh, be like, definitely oh. serial killer then. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. You know, doctors walked around looking super serious because the importance of dress as a badge of one's class in society was paramount. And the process behind the transmission of infection was very controversial. You know, it's like, don't tell me what I can or can't wear. I'm the authority. So, Doctors began to make this shift to be more in line and to be more thought of as scientists. Um, so still setting themselves apart, but trying to 
lump in with a group who was rapidly gaining appearance. So they dropped their traditional black coats and opted for white coats like the ones worn by scientists in their laboratories. And this represented essentially a fresh start for the medical profession. And this ended up over time, you know, between late 1800s and a mere hundred years later, now we all go through white coat ceremonies. Mm -hmm. So Santosh, you want to briefly explain what the white coat ceremony is to those of our listeners who did not go through medical school? Yeah. So for us, and I think it's still continuing on, white coat ceremony happens in the bridge between your second and third year. So traditionally, the first year and second year are still times where you're doing didactic learning. So a lot of classroom. At the end of your second year, you do start to do some clinical stuff, but the closest you really get to anything human is, you know, dissecting cadavers. And by the way, thank you for everybody who donates in the anatomy lab, which is actually, we do wear coats for that to protect our clothes and everything. But you get from second year, and then you're about to go on your very first third year, what we call rotations. So we start our clinical life, and before we do that, we receive, each of us, a short white coat. Um, and the, you might see these around the hospital. If you go to a teaching hospital, is a physician student or sometimes even a pharmacy student who wears a white coat, but the length cuts off, um, I guess, like just below the waist. Um, rather than going all the way down to like mid-thigh. So we get our very first coats, and this is a transition saying that you're going to go into clinical areas now to care for people. You won't be directly responsible, but you're going to go from being a peer student in the laboratory to being a hands-on doctor. And that's when we walk across the stage, just like a graduation, we get handed a white coat, we put it on. And it's, it's kind of a heavy moment. There's a bit of gravitas to it. Mazel tov. You've gone <laughs> through medical puberty. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's a neat rite of passage. I'm, I'm glad we went through it. Do you know when the very first white coat ceremony was performed? Uh, I maybe guess from everything that you told me, like early 20th century, like 1905 or something. 1993. No, really? Yeah. I mean, now white coats had been introduced prior to then, because as I said, early 1900s is when we were starting to make that change to be identified more as scientists sure. than simply men of letters. Uh -huh. But the first formal robing, like an ordination into the field was at Columbia University in 1993, and now it's done in medical schools all over the world. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize this is a recent tradition. Super recent. And anyone who's saying 1993 was over X number of years ago, you shut your mouth. <laughs> I was alive then. I was 13 years old. I don't want to hear that that was so long ago. Super recent. <laughs> barely, barely been doing. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. So there was a difference between, you know, if you're on the wards and you're seeing people, you do wear a white coat versus if you're a first or second year student, you don't wear a white coat. Uh, but this, that ceremony, like, here's your coat only came uh, super recently, as you said. Yes, in the night. <laughs> and after a brief kind of importance. Now, the white coat ceremony is still carried out, but more and more, white coats are really beginning to fade from hospital life. Uh, surgeons really just wear scrubs, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, most psychiatrists don't really wear white coats. They just mm -hmm. show up in more you know, business dress. Uh, Santosh, I know a lot of pediatricians don't wear the white coat because kids can find it threatening. That's true. And it's true, actually, of adults also. There is a form of high blood pressure that we used to call, we no longer call white coat hypertension, 
where a person might just be anxious coming to the doctor. And it's true of young kids, but it can be true of adults too, that when they see the white coat, it triggers that kind of anxiety and your blood pressure is artificially elevated. So you actually have to check it when they're not in that situation. But it does go a long way to shed that kind of mantle of authority around children uh, in order to make them feel comfortable. And we'll go into it in a little bit, but I have other very good infectious disease doctor reasons to not keep your white coat on. Yeah. And again, you know, considering how much we all push that that white coat has really become much more of a shield. It's a mantle that we don for authority, especially for the brand new interns and residents who will be starting this July. Congratulations to all of you. (laughs) Um, But they're walking in. And I remember when I first started on like week one of intern, I, you you could not have separated me from that coat with the jaws of life. (laughs) It was my security blanket. I would wear it talking to anyone in the hospital just because it made me feel like I had no clue. I had very much an imposter syndrome early on and having the coat lent me that little air of security and authority. Like, no, I, I earned this. I was given this. This was my, my doc mitzvah. And, (laughs) and it is where I would turn. And if I were to walk around and, and you will see a lot of, it's not just me, a lot of newer docs are much more likely to wear their coats, whereas older docs like me be like, where did I? Oh, that's right. I left it hanging in a chair in a lounge <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, I, I've hung it up as decoration. You're absolutely right about that, Josh, especially, and you know, I, I, I'm being a little bit sexist here, but it's actually just the truth. Young women um, who just recently graduated from medical school and they are now residents, their first year residents, instead of being called nurse or being called student or something like that, you know, they don that white coat and it, it sometimes even monogrammed on over the breast, um, you know, saying, you know, doctor so and so. So it's very obvious that this person's a physician and it's important. You know, it's important when you're an intern, especially nowadays, that you are responsible for your patients immediately, like the moment you step onto the wards for the first time. The other thing, Josh, I will say that it's super useful for is there are so many damn pockets, man. <laughs> and way back no, in the day... We're going to keep all my sandwiches in between patients. Yeah, yeah. So when you're a resident physician and you're just rushing, 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 you have to have oodles and oodles of paper in order to make sure that you have everything straight. You may need to carry instruments like your stethoscope and lights and these kind of a thing. And then, yeah, food, absolutely. And so there were a lot of us who those pockets, that coat, you know, kind of by itself is maybe like a pound, but a resident's coat, a true intern's coat weighs 35 pounds <laughs> with all this stuff in there. It's yeah, a miracle yeah. My, that they, they have, you know, good posture. <laughs> it's, yeah, because you're walking around, you've got your night call book, you have several medical references, you have a pharmacopoeia, a stethoscope, things like that. You want to you wanna hazard a guess as to what's in my white coat right now, <laughs> right at this moment? At this very moment, uh, a pen in the upper breast pocket. Uh, two pens, the okay. discharge pen and the writing notes pen because i like to have the color coding when i send somebody home gotcha uh a stethoscope that sits in my pocket because i stopped wearing it around my neck after one psychiatric patient encounter oh we may have to (laughs) talk about that some other time no no we don't (laughs) i just don't wear stuff around my neck okay um and a piece of string cheese i mean in the package yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, never. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, snacks. Now, I like a stethoscope, pens, and snacks. But as a resident, it had so much medical stuff in it. It and, did. 
And and that was important. You know, I, I'm a big believer in this thing called a peripheral brain. We learn, we really learn by doing things over and over and over. But while you're training, you need to refer back to all the books and texts and, and you know, printouts of papers that you have. Now to briefly veer away from the, the topic at hand, but still within fashion, just a little journal club, the lab coat of the future is being designed. Now, bands, <gasps> bands have been discussed because, you know, could white coats carry contamination? Same as we've talked about with ties. Um, they do cause all these problems, increasing anxiety in the elderly, in children, in people with mental health issues. So at the same time, debates are being held about phasing white coats out. Doctors are really fighting to keep the coat. We, we really? like it, uh, <laughs> or at least, or at least doctor yeah. societies sure, are sure. arguing, but it does need to change. So a couple of possible things for the lab coat of the future the Austrian researcher, Gerhard Moore, is developing a clothing or a lab coat with textiles that change their color when exposed to toxic or dangerous substances. Now, imagine that would be amazing in both a clinical or a lab setting. You know, your your coat or your work glove is coated with a dye that could burn your hands or if carbon monoxide is in the air that or something that you can't smell or taste, and all of a sudden the clothing starts to change color. You can measure pH levels in wound dressings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, wow. green means everything looks good. You could detect drainage or seepage. So there's a lot of potential for these, uh, but we're still, you know, they're still in the testing phases as cloth. But they're also looking at designing coats that are that have epaulets for the stethoscope to be hung around your shoulders. For those of you who do wish to do it, <laughs> there are coats that are now designed with women in mind. Whereas most white coats were just designed to fit men and men and women. I don't know if you've noticed have different body types. Yeah, that's true. The, the classic lab coat is let's be absolutely honest was designed for dudes. <laughs> That's the way the shape and the cut and everything. It is not at all designed to fit multiple different body types. In fact, it's meant to fit like a tall, fit, slim dude. So I, I often have uh, trouble with it. I will say, Josh, when you were saying when we turned around from the 19th to the 20th century and statistical method and scientific inquiry uh, merged into medicine. So then we became medical scientists. There were many, many, many docs that brought uh, the fields of pathology and microbiology uh, and chemistry over uh, into medical science now. And interestingly, the lab coat did work um, in terms of wearing the coat when you went into lab. So for instance, if you were, you know, we were doctors way back, you know, 1905 or something like that, you'd, you'd go and you do a biopsy on a patient's lymph node, right? And you would be the one who take that, that uh, lymph node over to your lab and do the slices and the stains and everything. So you'd be doing the lab work, uh, and then coming over and making the diagnosis. There was no super specialization or anything. So, Listen, my friend, I was yeah. still spinning my own urine for urinalysis. I mean, not my I was still spinning my own urinalysis and sending my blood down in the early days of sure. internship. And so it's, I was yeah, not totally going yeah, when you go in there, you really should have a lab coat on. Interestingly, though, what you would do is that you'd hang your lab coat up in the lab and then, you know, usually, you know, walk the halls and everything. You'd wear your just your your civilian clothes or your scrubs. So it is very strange how that lab coat made it out of the lab and then became this totem, just like you talked about, or this, um, what do you call it? Almost like a, a, a cape like a, a mantle. Well, I think that's the word you use, saying that I am doctor. I am doctor hero, super doctor man. <laughs> right? It does, it do, 
Yo, wh- when you round the corner though, and that thing like flares out a little bit for the first couple of times, it's just thrilling. Oh, <laughs> ten years, and I still haven't perfected my slow motion walk. Oh, oh, dude, we'll work on it. I promise. We do. We do. We'll, we'll right. get it. <laughs> Keep an eye to the YouTube channel, assuming it's still active, for <laughs> Doctor Santosh and Jay to to perfect our uh, slow motion walk. <laughs> uh, but let's move on to, to the next part. So underneath that white coat, uh, we used to be able to wear largely whatever we wanted as long as it was professional. But in this post-pandemic world, everybody's got scrubs. Pretty and, much everyone, yeah. And yeah. I got to tell you, much like uh, Left Eye, I personally don't want no scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> TLC reference. Oh, rest in peace. And it's true. Don't put face waterfalls, Santosh. Just stick to those rivers <laughs> and lakes that you're used to. <laughs> I'll, tr- I'll, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> um, but let's, so now, now that we've covered the white coat, let's talk about scrubs. Um, I'll start with the easiest, or it sounds like the easiest, but when did scrubs first appear? Well, you mentioned it was a staple in surgery. So they would be kind it'd be surgical attire that would be semi-clean when we came up with, you know, Lister's protocols and Samwise and all these guys saying that like when we go operate we should be clean. Is that where it came from? So maybe, you know, like late 1800s? Yeah, around uh, a little bit later than that actually. World War 1 is oh. sort of when we first began to see the modern medical uniform really take shape. Okay, okay. And it 19, was driven... 12, 15, so, something like that. Yeah, so, and it was really driven initially by the nursing profession for for scrubs, uh, mostly because the amount of inj- individuals during World War One who were injured were increasing so rapidly that women who were nurses at the time couldn't keep up with the demands running around in bulky clothes and things like that. So uh, by the time in between World War I and World War II, nurses really shifted from that uh, more formal style of button-down coat and little hat that you see into something that gave a lot more mobility, mm-hmm. less bulk, more comfortable. And at the time, the earliest scrubs were really more long gowns for protection against infection from patients. Right. Now, the due to the fact that most doctors operating in wartime really were surgeons, surgeons also began to adopt this style of like long gowns. And we've talked in the past about William Halstead, my favorite cocaine addict, who developed mm-hmm. the first <laughs> pair of latex gloves sure. and surgery. And originally, they were really only meant to be used during surgery, but because of you know sanitary reasons and not wearing the same thing in the hospital that you wear in the street, mm-hmm. this uniform began to evolve. So the more typical uniform style of scrubs that we think of today really didn't appear until, I'd say, the late 60s, early 70s, and then it became the main uniform for medical staff. So that's sort of a brief history of its rise. But originally, the very first scrubs in the operating room were white. And again, this happened the same reason that doctor's coats changed from black to white. It was to emphasize cleanliness, Cleanliness. purity, and the scientific method. Okay, gotcha. However, the combination of bright operating room lights... And an all-white sterile surgical environment with a bunch of people dressed in white led to just a teeny bit of eye strain for the surgeon and staff. As I'm sure you could <laughs> I imagine. imagine, yeah. And these were all because if everything was reflective on top of everything else, yeah, you'd go snowblind in there. So in an effort to combat that, they started looking for a more dull color that would provide relief. So in the 1950s and 60s, Uh, white scrubs or white operating room apparel, which was probably chosen partially for, you know, cleanliness science and partially because it was cheap, uh, were then changed over to various shades of green in the U.S., blue in the U.K., where they were called theater blues. Ooh, Um, yeah, the surgical theater. Because 
those green and blue provide a very high contrast environment against white that would reduce eye fatigue and also make, you know, bright red blood splashes just a little less conspicuous. Sure. Although I've got to say on the blue scrubs, they, that blood splatter, when it does happen, turns a ghastly shade of brown. Like it's, it's, yeah. But less threatening than being covered in a bunch of red on white. That's, that's true. (laughs) That's true. So by, and as we said, by the 1970s, we'd really kind of seen the shift from white to green to now what we think of as the more modern scrub, short sleeves to avoid contamination, Mm -hmm. a V-neck shirt and drawstring pants, or, you know, a short sleeve calf length made of cotton or polyester with a cloth cap and a mask and gloves. So this this became this whole became uniform became known as surgical greens in the US or theater blues in the UK and eventually became to be called scrubs because it was worn in a scrubbed environment where you were scrubbed clean. Cool. So why green and blue? Were they just the cheap colors because that's how the white ones were were chosen? Well, no, if you go back and you look at the primary color wheel and you see each color has its own tonal opposite or hue opposite. Well, most of the inside of the body is red and pink and sometimes various shades of yellow or brown. So looking at blue or green can very quickly offset. It's the counter color to the red. So it can, if you're looking at something red and then you look up and you see somebody else's scrubs, that can refresh and give a quick break to your cones, the color vision cells in your eye. And the brain interprets colors relative to each other. That's how we get the, you know, the various Instagram arguments about dresses and shoes (laughs) and things like that. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay. So if you're a surgeon and you're staring at something that's red and pink for four or five hours, you become desensitized to it. And the red signal in your brain actually fades. That could make it harder to find vessels or see nuance in the human body. So by providing a counter color, looking at something green from time to time kind of refreshes because then it reactivates the green cones and shuts off the red ones. And it can then keep your eyes more sensitive to variations. And this was done in a study at the University of California, Davis, to kind of show that refreshing thing. Now, did they have this knowledge of color relief at the time? Probably not in the same detail we do today, but they also realized that looking at a different color than the one you were staring at for hours on end would help with that after image or the eye fatigue. That's really, really cool. We don't think about this a lot. I think it's the neatest thing in the world. The signals that fire off in the in our retina when colors hit our eyes that it is an action potential it is a little cell that fires off and is sensitive to various wavelengths just as dr josh said but just as you can exhaust a muscle by flexing it too much you can exhaust that particular color cone And the fact that we can refresh as quickly as we do in these nanosecond windows is awesome. It makes me so excited to think about how fast our nerve impulses are from the retina to the brain. But I I think this is so, so cool. This is like, all right, well, my biceps are tired out, so I'm going to do triceps for a little bit, and then I'll come back and try biceps again. Yeah, so that's that's kind of where we went from – white to demonstrate cleanliness, then to uh, eye strain, allowing like, okay, well, let's bring in a different color. And it was less about like, let's look fashionable as in let's, let's choose. And they could have chosen a number, you know, they could have gone with brown as well, but green and blue were chosen specifically as the biggest counters to the most common colors seen in a hospital, white and red, which, you know, (laughs) or... The most common color seen at the time. Hopefully we're seeing a lot less of those. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely true. Yeah, the, there's been a lot more splashes of color into hospital walls since then. 
And that's why we also have cool splashes of colors for people who want to wear different kinds of scrubs. And I don't know if you have this, Josh, but we have color coding now in our hospital where we have a color of scrubs that nurses usually wear. And we have a color of scrubs, uh, which is purple for a lot of our therapies. So like respiratory, uh, sorry, not respiratory, for physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and then an olive green for the respiratory therapists so that you can see them from, you know, far away or down the hall and say, oh, I need that person right there. And you're right. In fact, a lot of research has gone into the impact colors have on patients and a couple studies, uh, which are admittedly very small and not rigorously tested, have shown that various designs and colors can help connect with various patients, particularly children. So, you know, green, of course, is nowadays the organic nature, tree, whatever color. Blue is the ocean. And you'll see that uh, around mental or psychiatric uh, floors. Mm-hmm. The walls will often be painted in varying shades of blue, green, or pink, as they're felt to be much more common. Whereas you'll see much more bright colors, uh, you know, yellows and oranges and things like that in children's hospitals to kind of perk up the place on the pediatric floors. And then, of course, the floors I am with the elderly, everyone's half blind. So they just pick some random puce. <laughs> Just some shades, just so that there's difference from from, <laughs> from room to room or hallway to hallway, so that you don't have to say things like, did I come down that hallway or was I just in that hallway? <laughs> okay, just a very, very quick diversion. Sure. Have you heard of the color puce? I, I, I've heard of it. I have to, hold on, just while you're on the phone with me. I have to look it up because I don't know what P-U-C-E, I think, is puce. Dark red or purple brown? Brownish, yeah. darkish yeah. reddish brown? Okay. It's like a grayish, reddish, purple brown. Sure. Um, brownish purple, grayish red. And it's it's kind of the universal color of old hospital hallways and right. rundown and rundown <laughs> hotels. Right. <laughs> the the rugs in rundown hotels would often be this color. Now, do you yeah. know how puce like where the etymology of puce comes from? I do. I don't know. This is so like in in modern English, of course. Like this word is so close to the word puke. <laughs> Why would you name a color? Okay, where where does puce come from? It comes from the Latin pulex or pulic, um, and it means flea. Uh, in French, it refers to flea because that is the color you would see of blood, dried blood on white bed sheets if you had suffered a number of flea bites. Oh, or I guess the same thing would be true for bed bugs or something like that. Yeah. yeah anything. Yeah. So the color sucked. of blood, the color of blood on cheap sheets after being bitten by a flea was seen often enough that it was named for the flea in French, puce. <laughs> and this was the color we decided to make the hotel like, oh, flea bites. What if we make the whole hotel this color or the yeah. whole rundown Aww. building this color, <laughs> which... Which, to be fair, probably not the intention, or at least I hope not. Sure. (laughs) But just a fun little aside for you guys. (laughs) It's such a bad color. It's so awful. And I'm glad that it's by and large gone. We do see plum and purple kind of, you know, these bright, vibrant red, uh, purple that you'll you'll see on, on some of our scrubs. But dude, puce is so depressing. It's flea-colored. When you say something is puce. <laughs> it's not even flea-colored. It's it's the blood that a flea has thrown up onto white bedsheets color. <laughs> oh, so gross. Yeah, so, colors. Colors are good. Yeah. Um, so it may share a little bit of similarity with puke, but that is neither here nor there. Um, and so we started to see a lot of those and the original nursing 
uniforms that that you saw. Uh, let's talk very briefly. We'll kind of go a little bit between older history and more modern. We did reference the early nursing uniforms, which have like kind of the curved cap and almost, I don't even know how to describe them in a way that well, people it, today can was, relate to. It was the one that the assassin was wearing in Kill Bill. There um, you she, go. She dressed up as a nurse to go and she was going to inject the the bride, you know, when she was in a coma. She was going to inject her with a poison and then Bill called her and told her not to. But yeah, so it's just- yeah, and it's uh <laughs> you know, it's it's not supposed to be a short as it's commonly depicted in like movies and that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, very, very pure white skirt with, um, you know, kind of a form fitting white top. And then that curved cap was so interesting to me, Josh, because it was always depicted as there's a few curls or something like bangs coming out in front of it. And then it would sit like a little square, but curved backwards um, so that it would be convex to the person looking at the nurse. And I, I still don't know how it was held in place. I'm guessing hair clips. Well, I don't know how it was held in place, but I can tell you how it was inspired. Okay. Because Florence Nightingale in the 1860s established a well-respected nursing school in London. Sure. And every school, especially a British school, has to have a uniform. I mean, that's the whole theme of this episode. (laughs) Yeah, because that's how you know who you belong to and stuff. One of her students, who I could not track down the name of, designed that original nursing uniform and drew their inspiration from hat down to feet from a nun's habit. So it was a long dress with a white apron and a white cap, but the the hair was still uncovered because it's not like you were covering your whole head like you do as a nun. Sure, sure. And to indicate seniority, nurses would use different colors of ribbon in the band of the cap. New nurses used light-colored ribbons, Uh while senior nurses who had been on the floors longer would have been around for patients and presumably, I guess, were not washing these ribbons as often, would use black ribbons. And the darker the ribbon, the more senior the nurse. That's so cool. I did. That's it's like karate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's why you don't mess with nurses. You know, the senior yeah. ones are all black belts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so. <laughs> so the bands were yeah, just like you know, that's the sensei right there, and there's a senior student and that kind of thing. That's pretty cool. And in 1918, around the time of the Spanish flu or the the flu pandemic, Mm -hmm. nurses were using, uh, military nurses anyway, were using something called tippets, which was a cape-like garment with badges to indicate the individual's rank. Nurses got capes. Oh, dude. (laughs) Nurses got capes with rank badges. I just thought that was super cool, and I didn't want to leave you know, all the nursing profession out of this because they do so, so much. And they've had just as many fashion influences. Dude, as- this thing is so cool. And, and yeah, th- so this is out of the, the um, what do you call it? The convent again. This is, it's mimicked after nurses um, who also had this kind of a drape. Dude, this is so, so neat. They, they look legit like X-Men. Yeah, it really does. In fact, the closest thing I can describe for the nursing tippet cape is if you picture Magneto's uh, chest armor up top or that kind of cape that Emma Frost always wears. Yeah, yeah, the kind of short one. Yeah, yeah, that one, that one would work. Um, that would be... That's what a tippet looks like. It's a cape that just sort of covers the shoulders. So, yeah, nursing uniforms were inspired initially by nuns' habits with concessions to make them more secular, whereas doctors went from more formal gentry nobility to more science-based academic uniforms. Um, And those were the influences that the fashion industry had on us. Now, we'll close it out with a new problem from an older issue, which is, Santosh, have you seen anybody, any of your medical colleagues suffering from maskne? Yeah, (laughs) I know this is a thing. 
We were really, really lucky on the West Coast um, here in SoCal. We had, uh, you know, we had this slow kind of rise of cases where, where, where I am in my hospital, we saw, you know, hundreds of cases at some point per day, but we were able to get enough people in shifts and change masks and stuff. So right now, Josh, no, because the, the, the uniform mask right now is the loose fitting, you know, surgical mask with just the, the loops over the ears. Um, so that one isn't so tight as to choke off the skin and cause mask knee, but it's definitely an issue for people who are wearing very tight fitted masks for a long period of time, especially the N95s with the kind of latex seals around the nose and chin. It's not just for the sake of scaling of selling skincare products. Um, but you know, in a sign of the times, Korean skincare brands are offering mask knee essentials, um, which with all the oil and sweat swishing around and a perfect airtight seal, at least if you're wearing, you know, a proper N95, what you're seeing is acne mechanica, uh, which is the same kind of acne American football players can get where the helmet rubs. Oh, Oh, yeah, 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 of course, that right on the forehead right there. Yeah, and this is because, as you said, the masks are tighter fitting, we're wearing them longer, so it's it's seeing a lot, lot more of rise of this in the medical field. So how do you address it? Well, dermatologists are recommending you treat this like you would any other acne. You wash it frequently. You don't want all the oil and sweat if you're wearing a cloth mask. You don't want all the oil, sweat, and dirt to sit there and be reapplied. So wash your cloth masks. Mm-hmm. Dispose of, you know, after whatever the current standards are for reuse, dispose of the paper masks. And, you know, gentle basic skincare routine. Non-soap cleanser, fragrance-free moisturizer, fewer ingredients better for, than more. If you need any other suggestions about that, listen to our dermatology episode with uh, Dr. Conforth. Oh, that was such a good episode. But you don't want to overwash your face because then it can dry it out. That's why you need the moisturizer. Yes, so, yes. So it's it's kind of a weird, delicate balance that you have to play. Ultimately, it's going to be solved by getting rid of masks when we can, not now, but sometime soon. So for right now, yeah, we have to find a way to keep it just moist enough that it your skin doesn't get irritated and just dry enough so that the moisture doesn't cause, you know, pox. <laughs> And I think with that, Santosh, we've managed to now cover the entire modern-day medical attire. So I bet you didn't realize (laughs) just how much influence, you know, nods to fashion shaped what we wear today and even what we're kind of continuing to wear going forward. Who knows? You know, another few years from now, we could be talking about the various ways that masks were influenced during this pandemic. Dude, I that's one of those things you know everyone says oh you know i want to live forever that kind of thing this is one of these things i know it's really niche but i want to see how it evolves i personally you know i don't wear white coats anymore because i've gone through uh the data that actually shows that white coats do scare patients and and it picks up all kinds of junk and all these kind of things Me too, which is exactly why i wear a white coat i like walking in yeah <laughs> Listen to me if you want to live. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the other part of it is uh, you've got, uh, you know, it carries fomites, so it carries infectious particles on there. And that's actually the same reason why, and we don't want to rehash all of fashion in this episode, of course, but I don't wear a tie. And I still, I always felt a tie was like restricting and evil, and it was a holdover from, you know, when people wore neckerchiefs or a handkerchief and we don't need that anymore because you know we have you know so water that you can just get from the sink and paper towels but 
it was the same thing. It carried fomites, and now I'm seeing less ties. Uh, you know, with my pediatric colleagues, they wear formal attire, you know, dress shirt, but no ties. So I want to see how this evolves. This it fascinates me. How when I am allowed to go back to wearing normal clothes and not scrubs again. You are going to see my full selection of bow ties on display. <laughs> Just I, yeah. bow ties. Cufflinks for days. Oh man, I'm excited for it. <laughs> you should, you should yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have, I have so many cufflinks ranging from formal to luchador heads. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, but I don't know. I mean, the masks might get gain their own interesting fashion and their own type of badge like what kind of mask you wear you know kind of shows who you are and what you are and uh i'm I'm excited yeah i mean we might start seeing ortho wearing masks that completely seal their facing because it's not like they talk to anybody anyway they show up at 3 a.m and then have us write all their notes uh but i'll i'll leave that out i just bad ortho day (laughs) (laughs) so that's it for this week and we'll conclude our fashion of medicine series at least for now although if you find any other interesting medical fashions please send them along to our twitter instagram facebook any social media you can find us on we're all over the place uh although it's still not quite time to give out travel tips and stories again i will recommend that for those of you who are concerned about flying uh, but still want to be able to travel and road trips aren't your thing let me remind you that we have a wonderful series of trains that cover the entire nation and do offer private sleeper cabins so if you've never been on a train journey before this might be the time to start thinking about using it to get across the country. Um, Cool. And that is the closest you're getting to it. Just the tip from me is I have not gone further than my couch to the bedroom or to the hospital in months. Aww. I know. Tragic and disappointing. But I have a dog now, so that's cool. Um, Anyway, that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to sources used in researching this episode. Until next time. And until the world's a little bit more opened up, stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, and if you have the opportunity and can do it wisely, happy travels. (laughs) Bye, guys. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.